Welcome to Tracks, presented by Brian's Vinyl Records. I'm Brian. I'm Jay. And today we're talking about Vince Neil's Exposed album as part of our three-part series on the death, resurrection, and reformation of Motley Crue. Exposed was released in 1993 by Warner Brothers, hot off the heels of Vince Neil's departure from Motley Crue. Now, the thing that strikes me about this album, Jay, is that Vince Neil left Motley Crue, I want to say, around April of 1992. This album was recorded, written, finished, everything in 1992 and released to the public in 1993. He wasted no time in putting out new music here. And I think what's really fascinating is the fact that uh, in a lot of the histories that you read about Motley Crue in this period of time, the band constantly says that Vince was just not interested. He wasn't showing up for rehearsals. He didn't bring any ideas to the table. He just didn't seem to care. And yet here he is, less than a year, less than probably six months, he has a whole album written, recorded, and ready to go. What? That's crazy. Well, you know, he hooked up with some other people to help him write and to do a lot of stuff. Uh, notably, we'll talk about Tommy Shaw and Jack Blades being a part of that. But, you know, he had Steve Stevens involved and, you know, a couple other people, too. And obviously Vince had a lot he wanted to say. Mm, um, yes. And, uh, you know, it's the same things he always talks about. But I think he, he wanted to do something that had his stamp on it. And, you know... <laughs> Molly Crew's an interesting group to to because they rewrite their own history as much as like Vince McMahon and the WWF and Hulk Hogan do. You know, it's, yeah, it's the same sure. kind of thing. And I I think it's what's neat to think about is that uh, the truth of the matter was is that Nikki and Tommy ran that band. They they really did. And and Vince had a lot of input in it, but eh, his songwriting contributions through the years are minimal at best in that group. And so if he had something to say he was going to say it on his own without them. And the the thing I find interesting in this is how many of these songs sound like they could have been crew tracks with like not crew people playing them. But there's a lot of it that sounds like it could have been Motley Crue. And then a lot of it that sounds like anything but Motley Crue. It sounds like a lot of their, I don't know, I don't want to say competitors, but a lot of the bands that came around because Motley Crue had paved the way you know, for a lot of bands. We'll get into it as we get into it. But um, yeah, I, I think it's neat that he turns around and has that to do. But I've seen, we've seen that happen before. Like, you know, bands break up or guys split off and all of a sudden they've got solo records just like for days, you know, because a lot of times you know, they're, they're compiling this stuff as they go along and maybe it gets rejected by the band or whatever. And then, okay, well, I'm going to go in the studio and record it myself. What I think is interesting is in 1993, music was shifting very quickly away from the hair metal and hard rock scene of, you know, the Hollywood, California glam, you know, club scene that had exploded uh, in the eighties and really from like 84 to about 91 or so. And he was going toward more grunge and Seattle and alternative rock and all that. And that Warner Brothers music would put like the kind of money and exposure behind it. I mean, there's a song on this this tra album that was part of a big movie. I mean, they, they put a lot into Vince Neil as a bankable solo star. Yeah, it is definitely interesting. And, you, you know, the type of music that Motley Crue and Vince Neil made was still okay in 93. It didn't really die until 94. 
So I can understand why they would put that into it. And again, like you said, he was approached and they did record a track for uh, Encino Man, starring, of course, Pauly Shore, a uh, classic I'm sure you've yeah. all seen. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and they had a good hit with that song, too. I mean, so you can't discredit uh, Warner Brothers wanting to do that. This was this, The song was created before the album was, was created, and yeah. uh, it was a hit for Vince Neil. And it showed that Vince Neil had some legs outside of Motley Crue. And you mentioned, uh, uh, you know, it sounds a little Motley Crue like that. I think that's a case when you have a singer who leaves a band and they do a solo record. The solo record is going to sound a little bit more like the band than the band's new record with the new singer because the new yeah. singer is different, right? And the voice is what you remember from a band most cases. So... Yeah, there's some stuff on here that sounds a lot like it could be Motley Crue, but the, Vince Neil's voice is so distinct that you can't not think of Motley Crue when you hear it. And then when we get into the Motley Crue album that comes out, you'll we'll talk about how that doesn't sound anything like a Motley Crue record. And yeah. maybe because uh, uh, Vince is not there, maybe other things. We'll, but we'll get to that when we get there. But as yeah, for we this, should tell everybody what we're doing as those three. Yeah. So it's this, it's this, it's exposed, it's Motley Crue's... Uh, Epimonious album with either a green or a red cover, depending on which one you got. <laughs> and then it's the Motley Crue reunion record, the one everybody has, Generation Swine. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're going to cover it all. I mean, uh, this is a, a pivotal period in Motley Crue's career where they didn't get along at all, to say the <laughs> least. And they still didn't, even after they got back together and recorded that Generation Swine album. And we'll talk about that when we get there. But I thought it was a fun period. Uh, I know I have a lot of thoughts on the 1994 Motley Crue record. And it's always, you know, been one of my absolute favorite albums. And so we'll talk about that. And I always wanted to cover that. But then as we, you and I were talking, we thought, well, it'd be kind of fun to cover Generation Swine after that, too, because it was such a different album and, and so weird uh, coming out of that whole Karabi incident. Uh, so we thought about that. And I said, well, why don't we throw in Vince Neil's solo record as well? Because it's kind of the kickoff of when Motley Crue kind of died and had to be reborn right so i think it's kind of a fun series we'll get i think it's going to be a, an interesting one to talk about but we're going to talk about vince neal here i think some interesting background on this you mentioned steve stevens so steve stevens wasn't actually going to be in the band to begin with they were going to go with white snakes adrian vandenberg on mm -hmm. guitar very originally. good guitar player by yeah the originally yeah. there but the warner brothers actually convinced them to drop vandenberg and bring in steve stevens I'm not sure why uh, they wanted to do that, but they did ask that, that be done, and it was uh, fulfilled that way. And then Steve Stevens really came in and took over the, the record. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't know who's, I forget who's listed as producer. We were talking about it offline or whatever, but Steve Stevens might as well have been the producer of this record. And the reason <laughs> they wanted him in because he has such a a palette of sounds and can play so many instruments and can arrange things so well. I mean, he's a lot of what Billy I made Billy Idol's music just, you know, iconic is Steve Stevens playing on it and stuff. And then you mix that with Idol's vocal. And they thought we've got the same kind of loose cannon personality in Vince Neil here. Let's put somebody in there with him who is, is an amazing musician one and who can kind of wrangle all that energy and get it going somewhere. I mean, that's, that's why you bring Steve Stevens in because yeah. there's no doubt the dude's chops are unbelievable. And again, he was one of those like taskmasters in the studio. Like you're going to get it done. You get it done. Right. Yeah, I agree with that. And I, I think too, they, he's got such an, a bombastic character 
outside of just being an amazing musician, you know, he had the look that if you're going to put someone with Vince Neil and give a band personality, so it's not just Vince Neil, you put a guy like Steve Stevens in there because he can help, you know, carry the load of this band and, and give it more credibility outside of Motley Crue. And I think that's a lot of what it is, but he, and he, he made himself very present. Like you said, he uh, decided that only he will do guitars and only he will record the bass, regardless of the other band members. He's going to do all of that. So I thought that was interesting. That it, That is fun to see. And, you know, you think about things like that, like guys that just you know, sort of come in and can kind of take over a place and they, they have their stamp on it. I think his his stamp is as much on this record as Vince Neal's is. Because we're talking about Vince Neal at the height of whatever vocal power he ever had. Like this was in his best period of being able to harness his voice and do things with it, and you know really get the most out of what he he had. Because you know the Motley Crue joke always was, well, he didn't care that he you knew he was that good of a singer or not, is that all the girls loved him. And that's <laughs> yes. why they put because those three ugly dudes, like you know, you need a pretty guy <laughs> out front. I mean, look, they are what they are, and and I get that. And what's funny is Steve Stevens has all that charisma too, because he is so much a rock star and all that stuff, but. Unlike a lot of of his contemporaries, he wasn't totally out of control. I do think sometimes, like now that you've mentioned that, like what this record would have sounded like with Adrian Vanderberg on it, like I I it would have been a different sounding machine because he is not nearly as heavy or an aggressive player like Steve Stevens can be, uh, but he's very yeah. much a technician too, though. So a lot of the more like there's a lot of classical influence. There's one thing people always forget about this era of music. A lot of these guys could play like played a lot of very classical riffs as part of their, you know, heavy riffing and stuff. And Vandenberg's part of that. So it would have been neat to hear what that sounded like. Yeah, I think it would have been totally different. Most of the songs Stevens didn't have a hand in as far as writing goes. And I would imagine that the writing credits he does have are probably, like you said, him arranging things differently and making it, you know, flow a little better more than actually writing stuff out. There's two songs, I think, on here where he is credited with Vince Neil alone. So in those cases, you know he wrote the music for it because, <laughs> let's just face it, Vince is not a musician. <laughs> yeah, I remember thinking it was such a big deal to see Vince Neil play a guitar, and then years later I'm like, <laughs> he's kind of just sort of holding it. <laughs> well, and, and look at the the album, or the songs he plays guitar on, it's A chord. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Same old situation, a- you know. Yeah. So <laughs> he didn't have to do a whole lot there. But let's talk a little bit about, before we get into it, the, the background of this. And really it was the fact that Vince Neil was approached by ex-Aussie bassist Phil Susan and asked to help him write and put a band together. So originally it was, let's get a band together. And it wasn't necessarily going to be Vince Neil, a solo act. It was going to be a real band. And so they put this band together. That's where Adrian comes in. And... They start writing and they write a bunch of tunes and Warner Brothers says, cool, get Stevens in here because we want him, right? So they bring him in. They bring Robbie Crane in. Suzanne actually left the band because of Steve Stevens. Like he got so fed up with Steve Stevens during this making of this album that he's like, I'm out. (laughs) I wrote all these songs with you. I'm out. (laughs) It's crazy. Take my songwriting, my, my publishing credits and see you, Jack. Yeah, pretty wild. Other members that are credited as part of the band, Robbie Crane, played with Rat and a couple other bands, uh, was moved to bass. He was originally going to be the rhythm guitar player, but Steve Stevens said no uh, bass. And they brought in Dave Marshall. I don't know, you know, he was, he had played with Slaughter a little bit. He had 
played with Michael Jackson. He, he's kind of one of those bit players, maybe, I guess you could say. He's a, guy, uh, he's a studio guy. He's a guy yeah, that, that works as, as a touring guitarist or as, as a studio guy to come in right. and like clean up your stuff because you're too messed up to play it right. You know? <laughs> there you go. Warrant, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, there you go, yeah. <laughs> you know, and then Vic Fox, who I have no idea who the hell that is on drums, but he is on both Vince Neil's solo records, so hey, more props to him, apparently. Hey, I'm going to tell you, man, they could have labeled the drums on this record Drew M. Sheen because that's a lot of what you hear on this is a lot of really good late 80s early 90s programming uh, and there's nothing wrong with that look there's some great records like that but the, I, I made that little note to myself I was like drums by drew M. Sheen. Now, who knows uh, apparently he got fired for stealing equipment at one uh, one point later on so uh, i don't know there's nothing about him i can find anywhere so i don't know if he ever went on to do anything else my guess is Probably not after stealing equipment. Probably didn't get another game. I mean, he's credited on the second Vince Neil record, so Correct. I don't know what that means. Well, 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 he didn't get fired on this gig, but yeah, yeah. definitely afterwards. All right, so there we go. We kind of set the stage here. Vince Neil is asked to help write an album. They write a bunch of songs. They bring in Steve Stevens. They start recording. All of this is done within a matter of months, right, from Vince Neil leaving Motley Crue. So like you said, he didn't do a whole lot of writing for Motley Crue, but he may have had all sorts of ideas that he didn't share or they got rejected. I mean, Nikki Six was the main songwriter for Motley Crue, right? I mean, that was his thing thing so i can see where he might have been writing songs on the side and someday hopefully be able to use them maybe that's what came together here but either way he's got a bunch of songs you know 11 tunes ready to go and they get in there and they get after it steve stevens does all his parts vince neil does all his parts we're releasing this album in 1993 april of 1993 a year after he's left motley crew meanwhile in motley crew land there's not a whole lot going on right now <laughs> they are still looking for a singer. They'll get him in 1993, but they're still trying to figure things out. So Vince Neil, first to the punch to get an album out after Motley Crue breaks up. And like we mentioned before, the Encino Man, You're Invited But Your Friend Can't Come, became a pretty decent radio hit for him. So already people are, are knowing what Vince Neil's going to be kind of like. Yeah, and I think what's neat about this is and it's not surprising the senior gets it out first, right? Because it's the least of the moving parts, right? You can get those musicians in that really know how to record stuff, and they lay that stuff down quick. And we should mention, in 1992, recording a record was still a big deal to do. You had to get a lot of tape, actual tape to do it. You had to have a big studio. You had to have a lot of room. You didn't have Pro Tools and all the cool stuff that we've got today to do it with like you can really record in a, a you know a bedroom the size that i'm in you can record a full band you know yeah so nowadays now you know, back then you had to have a big room or whatever and they were able to mobilize that really quick because i think you're right vince has probably been sitting on a lot of these ideas for a good while and then again they brought in people to you know help him along and and no small part blades and shaw being part of that Sticks had been a huge band from the 70s into the 80s. Tommy Shaw was a really well-regarded songwriter, singer, stuff like that. Jack Blades, the same, out of Night Ranger. They had teamed up to do Damn Yankees, but they were also producing a lot of records. I think they even toured today, just as Blade yeah. Shaw. And they were buddies with Vince. They wanted this to work. so And they had a lot of cachet with Warners, too. Let's not you know downplay that, because Atlantic's part of all that stuff. And... They put this record together quick. The thing about it that, that I want to put out, Brian, is I have never listened to this record until we decided to do Not this. Not many have. 
No, yeah, that's that's the thing. I remembered the Encino Man song. Yeah, I did. I, and as I heard different things on this, I'm like, oh yeah, I remember that. But I never listened to it because this was the part in my life, like when the when the cool '80s music I was into started to change. I dove headlong into the '90s country boom for about five, six years, mm-hmm. and I just rode that wave until I caught up with like the Gin Blossoms and all that thing, Counting Crows, like we've talked about before. So this is where I sort of tuned rock and roll out for a long time. And listen to the watered down rock and roll Nashville was putting out. Yeah, and I think that uh, unfortunately for Vince, many fans were in the same boat. Not many people bought this album. I remember I bought it right away when it first came out. I was kind of excited about it. And uh, the lead single, obviously, You're Invited, but your friend can't come, had been on forever. I saw that it was going to be on the album. I needed to get it. And at that time, the second single, Sister of Pain, was getting some airplay as well. So I had been familiar with that. I was still riding the metal wave, trying to make sure that grunge didn't get in the way. So I held You're on to it. The fight. I did, and and uh, you know the CD I have is the same CD I bought when it first came out. This has never left my possession, and I've always enjoyed, for the most part, this album and what it was. But again, the most I could find anywhere is that it went gold in Japan for selling a hundred thousand albums. Yeah. I don't have any sales figures for the United States or any other country. Which usually indicates I didn't really sell that well. It, yeah, it, it wasn't built to sell, you know, huge amounts. I, I mean, it, it, people probably thought it was going to, but it, it was just, it missed its time. I mean, that's the yeah. truth. The thing is, it's got pretty decent reviews. Like Rolling Stone trashed it, but at that point, Rolling Stone <laughs> had turned on all of this music. Oh yeah, so they were never they were done grunge. with that. Yeah, they were they were all into Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and all those groups, and rightfully so. Those are some really talented groups. Well, two of those three are, but th- this was a, a record out of time. I, I try to put myself in the mindset of this, and I'm like, okay, so let's say Doctor Feelgood happens, and then the breakup happens, then and Vince puts this out in 1991. Oh, yeah. So it, this is a gold record, yeah, at least for in America. Sure. This is a big record because it was it was a big deal for the singer of the biggest band, one of the biggest bands ever, to do a solo thing. Remember when John Bon Jovi did the Young Guns Two soundtrack mm-hmm. without the Bon Jovi guys, and everybody was like, "Oh God, Bon Jovi's breaking up or whatever." And you, you kind of thought it, but that that was a really cool record. It doesn't sound entirely like a Bon Jovi album. But it, some of the songs do, but not all of it. It's very much a concept record about a faux Western, <laughs> you know, right. which Young Guns 2 is a terrible movie and is a great soundtrack. We can do a whole <laughs> series of those. But I, I, I think about this sort of in that same light. It's like Vince Neil trying to step out on his own and do his own thing. And, you know, the fact that not a lot of people heard it, I think a lot of people like me, Brian, had walked away. Oh, absolutely. You know, from, from Motley Crue. And like you mentioned at the beginning, this was – where grunge and alternative rock were starting to take over. Formats were changing on radio stations. There weren't as many heavy metal hard rock stations out there. And a lot of that played against him. So it was totally a case of just bad timing for this album. But I agree with you. Had this come out in 1991, but instead of Decade of Decadence, this could have been a massive hit for them, uh, for him. Uh, I don't disagree with that at all. It's all about timing. Let's go ahead and start getting into the songs here as we've played this up well enough. First song on the album, Look In Her Eyes. This is a Neil Sassoon and Stevens 
right and it kicks off with some pretty hard hitting stuff to get you going right away yeah steve stevens is doing the kickstart dive bomb but then following up with like all kinds of other stuff that he does he's got his little laser gun into the <sighs> laser gun toy into the the distorted pickup which is sort of his signature thing uh, and will become increasingly annoying as he does it throughout this record. But it is a slamming track, no doubt. And it is a driving track. And that's the thing that people kind of forget about Motley Crue is Nikki Six in particular was very much a punk guy. He was into the punk like that. But Vince Neil, if there was another band he could have fronted in his life, it would have been the Sex Pistols because he mm. was into that. He was into yeah. that kind of melodic punk, hard driving stuff. And so, I, I mean, it's a, it's a thumping track. Um, I'm going to tell you what it reminds me of, and this is not the only time I'm going to mention this. This album, in a lot of ways, sounds a lot like Dockin' Records and the way that they're mixed and just the, the the way the guitars attack and the drums attack and everything and the when the vocals kind of sear through stuff. It feels a lot like a Dockin' record. I know you're not a big Dockin' fan, but I, I am. And, and they're heavier songs, as you were, um, feel more like this now vince neil can't sing at all like don dockin <laughs> on any planet but he can do what he can do and this is why i wrote to myself I was like this is vince at the height of his vocal powers as limited as they are it's it's a really good opener and it's kind of a it's a departure because when i think about vince neil singing songs he's either going to sing about like the stripper that left me or the one i'm about to bang I mean, that's kind of his two modes. And this is very much like a woman will kill me kind of song. Mm -hmm. like a, I don't know. It could have been in another movie or something. Probably like because that. he was with the hooker that he banged. <laughs> Probably so. <laughs> no, he's totally. Different, yeah. That's what I mean. But I, I like it. I think it's cool. It's a, it's a neat opening track because, you know, the opening track is supposed to set the tone, right? And I'm like, okay, if this is what we're in for, this is going to be a heavy, hard-hitting record. Exactly. He comes at you with speed. The guitars have nice, good speed to it. And yeah, it sounds like, oh my gosh, uh, Vince Neil's gone extreme heavy metal here. And I like it too. I think it's a great opening track. I think it sets the tone. I could have done a little bit without the, the constant stupid laser gun noise that comes <laughs> in as he's getting that dirt. It's like, oh my god! It's almost like CC Deville and a, and, and a whammy bar. It's like at some point stop. Yeah, take it away from it. Uh, except for I can handle the whammy bar because it's an actual guitar noise. <laughs> Having <laughs> this laser on a song constantly, kind of yeah. I, I remember when I first heard, it, I'm like, this is a great tune. And I hear that, I'm like, what the, what the hell is that? Weird noise going on in the background. So I wasn't very familiar with Steve Stevens' work, and and hearing that he does that in his guitars, I remember trying to figure out what the heck was going on and asking everybody, "What is he using for an effects pedal to get this weird sound?" I don't get it. So yeah, he's, he's holding a two dollar yeah, <laughs> toy right up. up to a two hundred dollar uh, guitar pickup, yeah, and that's it's what crazy. You get. It's crazy. But uh, I agree, a good song to kick off the album. I think it was really good. And then, of course, we get to track two, which is the second single, or really the first single off this album, because the first single was part of a movie soundtrack instead. So Sister of Pain. And I remember when I first heard this as a kid on the radio, I was just like, oh, this is amazing. This is this is exactly what I want to hear coming out of someone like Vince. You know, this, to me, sounds more like a Motley Crue track. Lyrically, it's it's right up there the way he he sings it and the way the guitars are played on this one i think fits really well and of course 
Jack Blades and Tommy Shaw co-wrote this one with Vince. Yeah, and you can hear them singing in the back of it too, the gang vocal. Like it's it's pretty it's a great gang vocal. It's a great riff. Um I wrote down lyrically this is 50 shades of Vince Neil. Uh, because it's, it's not. I mean, I, oh, I'm yeah. sitting there listening to you talk about like this is what I wanted from a Vince Neil record. I'm like, you clearly were not paying attention to what he was saying back then, oh. which neither was I. For for the record, I didn't I didn't know what Rattlesnake Shake was about until many years later. So you know, <laughs> I, I I'd paid attention. But what I I like about this one is Steve Stevens drops all of his goofy stuff and just plugs a guitar into a heavy amp with a wah pedal and just mm-hmm. kicks ass. And when he starts doing that kind of stuff, that's when you realize, like, man, this guy can really play. And I like Mick Mars. I like the way he plays. He certainly has a style that's kind of all of his own. It's a little mix of several decades because the dude is old as hell. And he's had all that (laughs) in him or whatever. But Steve Stevens is such a a great aggressive but good technical player too like there's just there's a lot of notes to it there's a lot of richness to it i love the way this song just powers through and then when it builds it builds like it's supposed to a great riff into a really killing chorus meant to be sung by you know twenty thousand people in an arena little did they know that was not going to happen anymore <laughs> but that's what the song is built for if there's any song on this album that i could see motley Crue doing live at a show this is it this fits on a motley crew album pretty well i can totally see mcmars doing this maybe not with all the wah-wahing all that and maybe he would do it with all that who knows mm-hmm. but this fits that genre perfectly for for motley crew i think there's two songs in this record that i think could could have fit on the girls 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 record and this is the first one and yeah I'll, I'll get to the second one later but this one i'm like this is a girls 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 motley crew record because yeah. that's when that you know if you go back to them like they they were messed up as all get out but they really stripped their sound down and got back to like really just hard hitting good rock and roll you know good heavy rock music and that's what this song is too which is again shaw and blades that's that's what they write like they you know those guys are known which is funny they come from these melodic bands yeah and their biggest hit and their other band is this friggin ballad mm-hmm. but those guys wrote some heavy stuff like go listen to some of like don't tell me you love me from night ranger is a slamming song and people just don't remember that and all people remember from sticks is all the opera crap but like they they were a heavy band for a little while too like sean blades are playing around no go listen to don't tread on me by uh mm-hmm. damn yankees that's a hell of a track right there yeah, th- those dudes are like some metalheads. Like they, coming they of really age. Are. Yeah, there's some good stuff. Yeah. But yeah, I, I this is just a fantastic song. I loved it when it first was released. I this is one of the main reasons I wanted to get this album was this track, and so definitely a great great tune. Up next, in track three, we have "Can't Have Your Cake." It's as cookie cutter as it gets, Jay. Dude. This is yeah. probably one of my least favorite tracks on the album. It's just there it's generic bluesy riff mixed with tap heavy guitar solo mixed with strip club song (laughs) like like that's that's what this is in a blender and it's about as bland as a applebee's margarita i mean that's that's really what you get It, it is as you're right it is as formula as can be and already i'm like oh no we have derailed by song three. <laughs> this is not a good sign. <laughs> so I I um I listened to this album twice through for this review, and I'll be honest with you, with this one I was like, eh, how much time's left in this? Like I'm looking at my phone, going, how much time left in this track? And it's it's there's nothing memorable. The nice part is this is the shortest track on the album. 
Thank God. <laughs> it's the only one that clocks in under four minutes. You know, so. like like cake, you should only have small bits of it. <laughs> and thank goodness they knew that. Well, what about some fine, fine wine, Jay? You can swallow that cake with some nice, <sighs> fine wine. This is another song I can see Motley Crue doing right here. Oh, oh, dude, this is this is a Cinderella song. Oh, like, uh, the, mm. the, the slide work, some of the heavy yeah. kick in the back. I I felt like this was a good riff, good backbeat. Now it's more strip club rock from Vince, so it doesn't fit Cinderella's mode in that end. But you got a great bass line. Steve Stevens again is playing bass as well here, and I I really I wrote that down. I was like, this feels like a Cinderella tune. Interesting. Like, you know, it's it's not it's obviously not the same vocal, but it it feels like a Cinderella tune. A real bluesy rock. Um, I kind of liked it. It was a comeback up from Can't Have Your oh, Cake. Yes, very much so. I like this one too. But to me, this sounds like De- uh, Dr. Feelgood. This would fit so well after mm-hmm. Sticky Sweet or yeah. or She Goes Down or something like that. This fits right in that motif right there. So that's why I kind of say this one could be a Motley Crue song to me. You're right about the feel-good. It does fit in that mode, yeah. Yeah, so I like this one it, definitely much better than Can't Have Your Cake. So right now I'd say we're three for four on the tracks. I think we're doing pretty good. We come up with the next track, which is called The Edge. <laughs> what do you got on this one, Jay? Hernandez Hideaway via Hollywood Boulevard. <laughs> you musical theater fans will know what I'm talking about. But I wrote I wrote this down. I was like, okay, Laser Toy Gun is now officially stupid. Oh, yeah. Um Dark and hard Vince is funny to me because Vince Neal will always talk about like being this hard guy and he'll kick your ass and all this stuff. And I'm like, I bet he started a lot of fights. I bet oh. he didn't finish many of them. <laughs> because no, this is he, not a dude. He, that- fit, he finished a lot of fights. <laughs> That was one thing they did. I think it's, well, yeah, but I I think about Vince talking about, again, how hard he is. And this is another, like, there's the strip club in the front and there's the biker bar in the back. And this is the biker bar song, you know? And all I can say is, like, what the hell is that solo break where we go into flamenco guitar playing? <sighs> like, as an intro, I'm like, okay, Steve Stevens wants to show off a little bit, fine. But to just break out of the song into that again, I'm like, that no, that does not work. That is not as I mean, it's a good piece of production because that's not easy to pull off on on Eighty State. But uh, yeah, I was not. This one's kind of flat for me, man. Yeah, I agree. Also, and, lyrically, it's lame. And let me tell you what, this song and one other one are songs I always forget what they are when it when right. when I'm looking at the album. I go. Which song is that one? And yeah, this one and one more on this album. I leave no mark on me to even remember how they go half the time. This this is one of them. Odd next is a great song, I think. Can't Change Me, a nice ballady tune written, of course, by Sean Blades. I think it's just a really good tune. And maybe it's my bias that Sean Blades can do no wrong, <laughs> but I really enjoyed this one. I think it's a good change of pace and I, I liked it it's a great damn yankee song sang by the wrong person it, there you go mm-hmm. yeah it's, it, i'm like these two guys do and you can almost hear them taking it over in the chorus anyway <laughs> but i'm like Man, this has been a really good show in place because you know, getting high and kind of sad is their thing and that, you know they can be kind of mellow and cool we get some more flow you know faux flamenco guitar work much uh, better flamenco well guitar i like this i one. liked it here i hated the fuzzy guitar solo i was like we didn't need yeah. you didn't need the fuzz face in the middle of that steve just stick with what you had it was it was fine but i'm also thinking like but if ted nugent had played on that he would have done the same thing to it no, so for sure 
yeah, so I, you know, I get it. Um, yeah, I wrote this down. I was like, oh, this, it's a damn Yankee song. Just Vince Neil singing. I would agree. And he can't really sing it, but it's a good song. Oh, he I, does I mean, I okay. Like He's all right, but it's not. It's not. Him. But again, if Blades and Shaw weren't there, I'd love to have the tracks and be able to like dump background vocals and just hear what. <laughs> what oh yeah, really it, going. He definitely needs the backing on the chorus for sure. But and and that really makes the song. Yeah, we didn't mention it too, but Timothy B. Schmidt, uh, who's now been with the Eagles longer than anybody else, you know, <laughs> with them was. But he he made a living in the '80s and '90s as a background singer, being able to sing these high notes like Tommy Shaw does and stuff. So he's I can hear him in there being a big Eagles fan. I'm like, oh, that's I hear Schmidt in the background there because he just has a great voice. I I mean, it's a fine song. It's a good change of pace, I'll say, because we yeah. kind of. You know, again, we've been drag stripping and strip clubbing and motorbiking and killing people and all this other crap. So you kind of dial it back, but we don't go full ballad. Because that would be the normal spot here, right? Is to go slow ballad. And yeah. We don't. No, not quite. But it's a nice change of pace enough that it feels like it's full ballad, even though it's not. So I like that. Up next, we have a cover song of a band, The Sweet. This is called Set Me Free. You know, it's an okay song. I, I, it's not. I'm not huge on it, but I think it's decent. I did not know this was a cover song until you just said that. Because yep. I didn't look at the liner notes for this. I, I wrote, Vince so badly wants to front the Sex Pistols. Oh, well, there um, you go. And, and I was it's like, a, okay, now that makes total a punk sense band. you say that. I was like, of course it does. Because, again, Vince is a punk guy, too. I wrote, fine, nothing special. Uh, if you're going to do a cover song, okay. I mean, do one that most people won't know. You know, well, I don't think yeah. most people know this one, so no, and so it, it's fine. I don't think it's it's not particularly interesting, but it's kind of a I don't know you know if I don't if you had the actual LP or the tape and you're flipping it over, I don't know what the first song would probably can't change me on the second side, but if this had started it off, I'd be like, "Ooh, this is not uh, this is not a good uh, <laughs> good beginning of things here." I actually do have the tape. <laughs> I would love you can answer I this question. I could look man. at it. <laughs> one second. Please do. This is great. Side two, track one, set me free. <laughs> okay. So, if yeah, as this would have started the second, this would have been the time I'd utilized the function of my tape deck that would skip to the next song. Because mm. this is a skippable track for me. I would agree not with bad, you. Not bad, but not special. I would agree. I Again, this is out of character for this album which makes sense that it's a cover song but i just don't think it was needed if i were to put this anywhere it would be at the end yeah you know, put it at the end maybe a bonus track or something yeah all right that brings us to track number eight living is a luxury i really dig the riff in this one jay i don't know i think it's kind of cool bouncy it makes fun but this is where vince neal really wrecks his voice trying to reach those high notes yep. at certain points and i think if they would have toned it down a little bit it might have been a little bit better but i do not mind the sun i think it's actually a pretty decent one i mean it's memories of the sunset strip being a real rough town <laughs> and a rough part of town and you know the only thing i'll ding it for is I thought it was going somewhere kind of cool musically, and then they brought in the friggin' horns. And <laughs> I, I, I just sort of abhor that as a thing from this era because it ruins otherwise interesting arrangements, in my hmm. opinion. It's okay. not needed. I thought it was okay. It wasn't bad. It's not as bad as 
can't have your cake. That's like the worst <laughs> yes, song. Absolutely. The, I think we both will agree that's that's the worst song on the record. But Lemon is it's, it's okay. It's not bad. I I do think we we're both right or you you've nailed it right and I agree with you that this is Vince wrecking his his limited vocal range. He cannot <laughs> sing this song. Yeah, he tries uh, he did, super hard to get up there in in, in yeah. certain parts and I just don't think it was needed. He didn't need I don't to know go. Tommy there. and Jack were busy that day or what? Well, they, this they, is a Neil Stevens right, so they must I not know, have been but around. I, like they they could have come in. Yeah, if they didn't come in and sing on this like you can tell like there's no saving it. Like it's just not it's it's fine, but it's not special. It's the second song in a row. I write. It's fine. It's not very special. So I'm kind of bored with the second side of this record now. Yeah. All right. Next up, we get to the track everyone knew off this album. You're invited, but your friend can't come. Only it's not the one everyone knew because Steve Stevens decided he needed to re-record all the guitars on that one and change it up a little bit. And I got to say, I remember when I first got this and listened to it and was like, this doesn't sound right. Why? What's going on here? This isn't the same tune, and it's not. I much prefer the Shaw Blades recorded version with Vince that they did on the Encino Man soundtrack. I think it's a better flowing song. I think it works better. It's more raw. This one just doesn't have the same edge. I love the song. I think the song is absolutely fantastic, but I wish they would have kept the original version for me. This is the other one that I felt like could fit on the Girls, Girls, Girls record because it feels like a second, a B-side Girls, Girls, Girls song. It It is not the song that I know, and I'm with you. The Encino Man version is the superior version of this song, but it is this album's version of that song. Because yeah. like, if you stuck that Encino Man version on here, it would sound really out of place. Agreed. Yeah, yeah. well, totally different guitar playing, too, because I believe Sean Blades did the the work on yeah, that they, one. They, yeah, they did all of that, and Stevens is not them. <laughs> he's, yeah, he's like, no, we ain't going to do that. And, and he, he, I think I, I actually like the way he plays it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just not as good a song. But it's buried on the record, but it gives this back half a real lift because up to this point, it's like, oof, I may never flip the tape over. <laughs> I mean, yeah. at this point, because there's no other reason to. Um, this is, I'll, I'll go ahead and spoil it. This is the only reason to listen to the second half of this because it, it's an interesting take. It's like covering your own hit, you know, and so it's a different take on the song. It's not as good, but it's still, the, it's still got the vocal there. And it's still enjoyable. Yeah, it's fine. It's yeah. good. It's actually it's actually better than fine. It's pretty good. It's just a different take of the song, but it does feel like a Motley Crue song. Yeah, I would agree. I think it, it, it could fit in there easily, and I think probably that was the point that Sean Blades were going for when they wrote it, was to make it sound like Motley Crue, because I don't know if they even knew at the time that Vince had left the band to begin with, yeah. so... Who knows? But uh, I like it. I, it's it's a great tune. I really like this song, and I will always sit and sing along with it when it's on here. I just wish, I wish I had a copy of the other version because I think the other version, like you said, it's superior. Yeah, it's a better song. Yeah. Up next, we have a song called "Getting Hard." Gee, I wonder what that's about. <laughs> this is the second song on the album that I never remember what it even is when I look at it. I'm like, which one is that? I I don't. It not memorable at all. Let, let me help you remember. There is something you can remember. It's, it's, it's Steve Stevens with a kill switch on a guitar and a cool bass line. Like, it actually has probably one of the best bass lines on, on the record. Um, you can tell he wanted to try to make something. It's more biker bar music. It's totally forgettable lyrically. There's nothing cool about it. Because at first I thought the same thing. I was like, mm, what's this about? But it's about, like, being tough. And yeah. Wearing leather and all that, you know, cool stuff. Um, but 
the music work on it is cool. Again, the kill switch stuff on the guitar, which, mm-hmm. and the bass line run is cool. Like, I, I like the music in it. I was like, mm, it's a good guitar riff and a bass line wasted on a really bad set yeah. of lyrics. And that's all I can say about it. I would agree with you on that 100%. It's just, and that's why I think it's not so memorable to me is because I can't even recall the chorus and I just listened to it a, a couple of days ago. Yeah, you're you're invited, but your friend can't come. Should have been the next to the last song, and then "Set Me Free" should have been the last song of the record. Like the yeah. cover song should have been the closeout. And yeah, because it's this is badly put together here on the back. Yeah, yeah. We'll close the album out with the song "Forever." Uh, this is the ballad of the album. An interesting placement for it. I'm not sure it should have been the final track on the album because I think you should have gone out with something a little heavier, a little more in your face to end the album, leave you wanting yeah. more. This is kind of like. Let's chill you down after a nice meal, give you a glass of wine, sit back, relax, and just, uh, you know, fall asleep. Yeah, this is Vince Neil trying to do Yacht Rock, and it sucks. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's the obligatory ballad to end with. They'd started doing this on records at this point. And so I, I was like, okay, so yeah, I get that idea. Um, but it's kind of a letdown. I mean, because it's a boring song. There's nothing real special about it. And I've heard Vince sing a lot better ballads. Yeah. You know, I mean... For sure. It's, this is not a great This is him tune. trying to recreate Home Sweet Home and yeah, dropping I, on it. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's that piano ballad. And then what I do really like about this song is the really pretty guitar work that Stevens adds to mm-hmm. it after Live Forever. And he's the do 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 do. It's just really gorgeous oh. guitars. And it's yeah. the only saving grace that this song has because lyrically it's just dull and bleh and yeah, i mean it's it's a it's a d-rate song in the genre like it's it's what a d-rate band would do yeah. you know and it's just kind of weak it's it's not it, and it doesn't fit the record because it started off with such a killing slamming yeah. couple of tracks like if you ended again do, do my rewrite you end with your invited but your friend can't come and set me free at least you got a couple of kickers going out the door you know yeah no i agree i mean if you would have started side two with living is a luxury i think that would have been fine to start that album off throw forever in after that kind of do that and then kick it back up with your invite but your friend can't come and close it out with that punk cover set me free i think that would have been much better i just remember every time i listen to this album and i get done with the song forever and i'm sitting there waiting for the next track and it doesn't come and i think oh that's right they end it with this yeah, you have to wait two years to get that next round. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's just like, oh, well, okay. It just falls yeah, flat a, at the end. Yeah, it's a very flat way to end what has not been a flat record, Mm-mm. I will say. Um, and started off as something very, very interesting, but it did not end well. It's kind of like movies that the first half is really cool, and then by the end of it, you realize they had no third act, and it just falls apart. Also, every Stephen King book ever written. And so <laughs> yeah, but it just dies in the end. It's like, well, that's it. Goodbye. Yeah, I wish they would have done something after this to really kick you in the face on the way out. That's what I want to hear. But like you said, look at Dr. Feelgood. It ends with that time song time for change yes and it's just like <laughs> go back and listen oh. to our, our wailing about that on a previous why why do you gotta end it that way you know <laughs> there's so many good songs you can end it with and that's the don't one. go away mad was the way to end that record absolutely that was that was, that was totally those guys telling that was a great God. ballad that was also rocking 
Yeah, it's a great song. It's a great song. Is what it is. But here we are. We're at the end of Exposed and part one of our series on the death, resurrection, and reformation of Motley Crue. Well, what are your overall thoughts? This is the first time you've heard this album, Jay. So what are your thoughts? I think you said you listened to it twice. I did listen to it twice. I would I would say there are four songs on here that I would, if you're into Spotify, Apple Music, that kind of stuff, like throw them in your playlist for this genre of stuff. I, I would definitely say have Sister of Pain in there, Fine, Fine Wine. I'd put You're Invited But Your Friend Can't Come. If you can't find the Encino Man version, use this one. And I'd put Look In Her Eyes in there. I think that's a, that's a slamming tune. The rest of them, nah, you can kind of skip. I'll be honest. They're... They're not special, and they're not all that memorable. It's not a terrible record. It's uh, it's about a C minus, you know, altogether. That's what I would give it. But there's some there's some stuff in it that works, and <clears throat> particularly Sister of Pain and and uh, You're Invited But Your Friend Can't Come are really well written and clever songs. Even if they're not terribly deep, they're fun. And that's the joy of sean blades right there exactly yeah i i would add can't change me and living in his luxury to the list because i think those are decent Mm -hmm. tracks and and fun to listen to if we would have had your four my two and then throw in one or two of these other tracks i think that would have been perfectly fine eight track album would have been solid it would have been a you know probably a solid b album right but with all the extra filler on here and just stuff that just doesn't catch you the edge getting hard the last track in the wrong place that just kind of falls flat so i'm with you i I would probably give this a c c plus i actually really enjoy this album but i've had it for many many years and listened to it for many many listens so songs i may not have liked at first have since grown on me and i get into them more but yeah i would say if I'm, i'm looking at it as a critic C plus, I would give it probably. It's a decent effort. Vince sounds good, and coming out yeah. the gate like that, I think was a solid move for him, and I think gave him the one up on Motley Crue going into it. And I picked on him some in it too, but I'll say Steve Stevens on this was was a good choice. Like oh, he yeah. added a sonic element to this that just wasn't there, and it showed, you know, Vince coming out of a band with a powerhouse guitar player, what he sounded like with another one. Yeah, you know, and and not that Adrian Vandenberg wouldn't have worked. I think that would have been really interesting. It probably would have sounded more like a Night Ranger record, honestly, <laughs> which isn't a bad thing. Um, but I, I think it gives it was a good balance, and obviously he was there to wrangle all this together and, and keep it going. And maybe one day we'll talk about uh, the the other. I haven't heard the the second Disney record, but I didn't know it existed. So that tells you <laughs> what I. But I think it probably holds because I know Steve Stevens is not involved in that. Well, you could say this one didn't sell a whole lot. The second one sold even less. I mean, not many people had that album at all or even knew it existed. I didn't know it existed. I never knew he put it out until I saw it in a store and was like, oh, what's this? And I picked it up, you know, but uh, it had no radio play or anything that because by that time there were no radio stations playing that kind of music. And so it kind of got lost in the shuffle. But I, I do want to say, you know, as far as Steve Stevens goes, love his guitar work on this. But for God's sakes, he overused that stupid, stupid laser gun. Yes, he does. And <laughs> it was just painful at times listening to. I would have loved to have heard this without all that in there. Maybe one or mm-hmm. two songs throw it in there because it's a trademark. But good Lord, dude. <laughs> 
you have it on the first song because it lets people know that it's you. Yeah. But by the fourth song, you've used it. Like I said, now it's officially stupid. <laughs> it, needs to, it needs to go away. Like, yeah. you can't keep that crap up. But, I you know, it's a ego, man. Yeah, someone happens. needed to say, dude, dial back a little. I, I mean, I don't think anybody was telling Steve Stevens to dial anything. <laughs> That's the problem, like, yes. I, I think he was telling everybody else what to do. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. All right, so there you have it. That is... Vince Neil's Exposed album, the first album released after the split from Motley Crue by any of them. Up next in the series, we will talk about the 1994 self-titled album released by Motley Crue and their brand new singer, John Karabi. I'm looking forward to talking about this because there's a lot to say about the album itself. Uh, not just about the songs on the album or everything else, but the direction, what happened with it, how it came to be, and things like that. I, I this is a subject I love talking about because I am a huge John Krabi guy. And so we'll get there next. I hope you enjoyed this episode, though, on Vince Neil's Exposed. And can't wait to bring Motley Crue and, of course, Generation Swine to you down the road here. Looking forward to that. Man, it's been great talking to you about Vince Neil's Exposed. I had a blast. Hope you enjoyed listening to it. Join us again as we take on Motley Crue's 1994 album sometime in the near future. Can't wait to get into that. Jay, thank you for being here. Until next time, keep spinning, vinyl friends.